New Eastern Europe podcasts. Slovakia has a new government. Slovaks elected a new parliament. And uh, we already see some political changes which seem to be quite worrying for the region. Anti-liberal, Eurosceptic. Is it as bad as it seems? I ask Tomasz Strażaj, Slovak Foreign Policy Association. Hello. Hello. So what do you think? Is it as worrying as, well, we tend to think at the moment? The truth is that Slovakia really has a new government after the September elections. The truth also is that the government only has a very tiny majority in the parliament, three votes, if I'm not mistaken. So it's very tiny. We see and we know that the rhetoric uh, before the elections was very offensive. Some members of today's government actually used uh, vocabulary that was considered to be quite offensive and in line with uh, the rhetoric of uh, some other politicians in Europe who are labeled as extremists mostly. But the truth is also that we have to distinguish the pre-election campaign and the practical steps of the new government. Okay, so this is, this is a regular thing. One thing is the electoral campaign and then reality when they take over power, they also take over responsibility. However, we see first actual steps. One of those is uh, limiting support for Ukraine, for example. And this is something that is quite worrying if we consider the war there. Well, here we have to distinguish between different types of uh, the support. The truth is that the previous government or the governments in Slovakia really provided huge support to Ukraine. Uh, Slovakia was the first to deliver its uh, anti-missile defense system to Ukraine, the Soviet type, of course, uh, the S-300. We also gave uh, Ukrainians other military equipment, including uh, the MiG jets. So there, the truth also is that there is not so much left, I would say, in the reserves of the Slovak Ministry of Defense and the government. The Prime Minister, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of Defense jointly say that Slovakia is going to continue support Ukraine with one exception, and it's the military support on the governmental level. If there is not so much left in terms of equipment, then what does it mean then? Slovak government is not going to question business contracts that have been already agreed on between the Ukrainians and the Slovak companies. And Slovakian companies uh, have something to offer and there is a demand on the Ukrainian side for that, like the howitzers, the ammunition particularly, but also some other types of equipment. So if this is going to continue, if Slovakia is not going to block the decisions adopted on the EU level, I still consider this to be not so huge change when it comes to the orientation of Slovakia's foreign policy and the support of Ukraine. So what you are saying that in reality not much may change, 
However, we see a change in tone and language. Definitely, definitely. Here I would completely agree with you that uh, the change of rhetoric is apparent and is going to continue. Why? If we maintain the same actual policy, so why the change of language is required? It is connected uh, to the way how the government actually got to power and why it, the parties that are now parts of the government, how they receive the support of their voters. They have to deliver now to the voters because they appealed on populist appeals, on nationalist appeals, and the voters expect the governmental parties to deliver. So that's why the rhetoric is there. On the other hand, the prime minister, but not only him, also other governmental representatives, are quite aware of the fact that there are quite severe limitations for behavior on Slovakia as an EU member and NATO member. Just to provide you an example, Slovakia in Central Europe or the Visegrad space is the country that is the most integrated with the European Union. We use the euro currency and of course it brings certain limitations to the government in terms of maneuvering. We have agreements that were actually made by the previous government, including the one with the US on the defense and so on and so forth. So that's why I am not that much skeptical when it comes to, you know, very dramatic change in terms of the orientation of the government. Still, I'm speaking about foreign policy and European policy. So let me understand. You're saying that the core policy with the core interests related to European integration, NATO security system, they are not going to change. What is changing is the language and the changes or marginal items around the core. Am I right? What is marginal? Rhetoric, to a certain extent, can be considered as a very important factor. And I can imagine that the Ukrainian partners might consider this rhetoric to be quite offensive, you know, and damaging possibly parts of uh, the bilateral relations, but not entirely, I would say. Really, uh, it's uh, quite early to assess the policy of the government. But if we look uh, at the performance of the prime minister, at the last EU summit, if we actually consider the performance of the foreign minister and the minister of defense, their meetings with their counterparts, with both EU and NATO, I really don't see so many warning signals there. Rather more continuity than discontinuity. And the decision to stop providing Ukraine support, military support, on the governmental level, this is very important to add, on the governmental level, was more or less uh, taken into the consideration slash accepted by the partners. We started with foreign policy, but let's look inside Slovak society and Slovak politics. Again, from the outside, it seems that at the moment when Poland rejected the populists, more or less at the same time the Slovaks made a move in the other direction. Is Slovakia really facing similar threats or similar difficulties as Polish democracy used to face for the last eight years, let's say? 
Well, of course, uh, there are some challenges that uh, need to be responded. We also have uh, our own history. In the 90s, we also had to fight with the nationalist populist government of the then Prime Minister Mechiar. And at that time, his policy really threatened our future accession to the European Union and NATO, both. So at that time, Slovakia was really facing isolation. The situation now is different. We are part of both integrationist structures. We are in a different position completely when it comes to bilateral agreements with our partners, strategic partners. Domestically, I can imagine then in the internal affairs, the government might actually face some attempts to concentrate the power in its own hands in order to make the future or the perspective of being re-elected more possible. Still, I don't think that uh, while doing these changes, the government would cross any red line in relations with the European Union. And I have an argument for that. Uh, Slovakia is the most dependent country in the entire Central Europe when it comes to the EU funds. 80% of the public investments that are made in Slovakia are financed through EU funds. Prime Minister Fico, it's his fourth term uh, in the position of the Prime Minister. Of course, he's a complicated personality and his image is also not really positive all the time abroad, but he's a pragmatic type of politician, definitely. I think he realizes where the limits, where the red lines are in order to safeguard the financing, you know, from the EU funds. So that's why I don't expect any open clash between the Slovak government and the EU's institutions or the EU as such. You have mentioned social expectations. So what do you think the government should deliver and what are the expectations that should be delivered in order to ensure good results for Fito and his government in next electoral rounds? And of course, the European Parliament elections are half a year ahead. So what do you think should be delivered? It's already obvious that uh, one of the cards he is playing is uh, social policy and increasing social allowances. This year, the retired people are going to receive quite significant support for the government by the end of the year, which is clearly perceived as the sign that the government takes the care of them. The economists say that it's not possible to maintain this policy in such you know, demanding times because the crisis is here. We feel the consequences of the Russian aggression, of the COVID crisis still. So the situation is not so well that the state could finance so generously, I would say, different kind of allowances. But it is doing so in order to deliver again and to respond to the needs of the people. I also think that the government would uh, perform a double-faced policy, which means behaving differently on the floor of international institutions, including the EU, and differently on the domestic floor. Here again, the Prime Minister and other representatives would need to deliver, so the language can be different on domestic playground and different abroad. So this is the way Prime Minister Orban in Hungary 
played his game for years now, saying very different things in Brussels and different things in Budapest, and also acting differently in both places. Is this the role model? Mr. Fizzo has his own experience because he, he performed already the policy he had performed, the policy like this, for a couple of years before he actually stepped down as the prime minister after the murder of the journalist uh, Kuciak. So uh, he has the experience, he knows how to play on domestic playground and how what face to show internationally. So he doesn't have to inspire so much from Orban, but of course, Prime Minister Orban serves as an inspiration for those political leaders who do not reject, you know, those authoritarian tendencies and who want to work on the concentration of power in their hands. But still, I think that Slovakia can't become the second Hungary because of those institutional limitations and because of the different track record Slovakia has had until now and it is really different from the one that Hungary had. I used Hungary and uh, I mentioned Prime Minister Orban because he is the most vivid example of anti-liberal tendencies in our region. Now, how do you see the regional cooperation, the V4 area uh, working together with so many, not only different, but contradictory ways of doing business, with Orban going one way, Poland now going the very different way, Slovakia having its own game, not necessarily along the others, Czechs playing their own difficult and very interesting game. Is there any sense to talk about V4 area anymore? Well, I think that it's still reasonable to maintain this platform as a discussion platform. It's better to have, you know, your neighbors on board than not to speak to them at all. So from this point of view, the V4 makes sense, as make sense having other platforms for the dialogue. We can find some topics that can be the common denominator, the illegal migration, which actually serves as the example. There are joint efforts in terms of transport infrastructure, for instance, energy infrastructure, security and defense as well. So I think that, uh, of course, the role of the V4 shouldn't be exaggerated, but uh, it has always been the coalition of the willing, you know, and a very informal initiative. So why to abolish it or cancel it if it's so informal? It's better to keep it and perhaps wait for the better times because the things do not develop linearly. We can expect different types of developments in other countries of the region. And the truth also is that Slovakia, Hungary are not the only examples of the raising uh, popularity of anti-liberal tendencies. Look at the Dutch elections recently and who the winner is. These are the trends that should be further analyzed, I think, because they are present in many, many countries throughout Europe, but not only throughout Europe, because the US elections are also approaching. Well, and Poland is just coming out of the anti-liberal period and we still don't know where the situation is going to go, how it's going to develop. But I have this feeling that you are really kind of trying to maintain or to convince us 
that it makes sense to maintain the V4, the Visegrad 4 forum, while really limiting expectations. It means maintaining it as a, what, discussion club? Are there any actual reasonable common regional projects that can be developed other than just sitting and discussing our differences? Well, I would really distinguish the technical or practical cooperation and the political one. Of course, when it comes to political cooperation, we have had the dividing lines in the V4 for a couple of years already. Prior to the escalation of the Russian aggression in Ukraine in February 2022, the dividing line was between Czech Republic and Slovakia on the one side and uh, Poland and Hungary on the other, because the two had problems with the European institutions. Then the situation changed after February last year because Hungary was left alone. The other three countries opted for a different type of policy, support of Ukraine. They had much different ideas how to cooperate or not cooperate with Russia. And after September elections in Slovakia and uh, Polish elections in October, the situation changed again. I can imagine that the Czech Republic and Poland would strengthen their cooperation in many areas, at least until the change of the government in the Czech Republic. They will have elections in two years and the opinion polls are not really supportive uh, for the current government. But still, I believe that the strengthened Czech-Polish tie might be for the benefit of other countries of the region as well. And you are right, I wouldn't really match Slovakia and Hungary together, though Hungarian Prime Minister would like to see very much Slovakia as a very close partner, but there are actually some issues that are dividing the two countries, including uh, the ones that are related to the position of the Hungarian community in Slovakia. There are some unresolved, still unresolved problems from the past. So it's not going to be, you know, so pink as one could have uh, imagined. So the dividing lines will be there and the political cooperation will just be hibernating and limiting to the summits or gatherings that you mentioned, that would more or less be sort of a discussion club and would not really be focused on cooperation because the interest would be different. But when coming to this practical cooperation, I think there is more I would say, tangible food for thought then. We have the International Visegrad Fund that supports civil society and educational projects. We also, as I mentioned, have some projects in terms of sectoral cooperation, interconnections, infrastructure, energy, nuclear energy, that might become one of the interesting points of reference as well. The climate issues. The new Polish government is going to be more open to the discussions on the climate change and green transition. And uh, the new Slovak government hasn't actually rejected this idea. On the contrary, it subscribed to it. So why should we take this as another example? So there are issues of sectoral nature that can be further developed, but political cooperation, which in ideal world, would be the umbrella for those, uh, you know, practical activities, would not be so intensive at all. So that would mean that we would have this kind of double speak with political divisions, not really, or hopefully not really impacting the 
actual regional cooperation. And this has been a, an elusive dream for over, what, 20, 30 years of having this regional platform and regional stances in discussion or in cooperation with Brussels, with Western Europe. And it has never materialized. Let's just use our imagination. Is there any chance of developing kind of regional strategy and working together versus Brussels? Or, that, or do you think that divisions and the different levels of integration went that far that it's not feasible anymore? The Visegrad cooperation has never become a well-institutionalized initiative. It has always been very informal and I think it should remain informal. Because imagine that in a situation when particular countries would have so different positions on the support of Ukraine or cooperation with Russia, the group would need to adopt a joint position. It wouldn't be possible. In informal circumstances, it is possible. We can just concentrate on those issues where we do find common uh, background, I would say, or common platform. And this is going to continue like this. And from my point of view, when the Visegrad group really became, so to say, famous in the European Union, it was after 2015, in times of the migration crisis, not because of the positive agenda, but rather of the negative agenda. At that time, the political cooperation in Visegrad was on its peak. Do we really want to repeat this situation? I think it's better to have politicians staying calm and uh, having practical cooperation, which is really closer to the people. I just wanted to put the situation in the region in the European context as well. So we jointly have to be really careful about the maintenance of democratic institutions. We, as the members of European Union and NATO, shouldn't detach ourselves from the countries that are, so to say, currently in a different position or in a situation. That's why I think that the maintenance of joint platforms like V4, but not only that, is useful and should be continued. My question also is how to make V4 more compatible with other regional platforms. What will happen to the 3 Cs initiative after the change of the government here? You know, these are the questions that are also of interesting nature. But I think that, and your question was right, how to actually make the synergies out of the positive developments in the region in order to provide benefits not only for the countries in the region, but also for the European Union or even the transatlantic community. This is the question that should be asked and answered, possibly. Do you think that the regional countries, in this case, except Hungary, could work to support Ukrainian integration with the European Union or is it way too far to, to even consider it reasonably? No, it's of the utmost importance for our countries. And we have been uh, doing quite a lot in that regard. And here I'm quite convinced that Slovakia is going to continue the policy of supporting uh, EU's membership of Ukraine. Despite the change of rhetorics of the government? Despite the change of the rhetoric, believe or not, Mr. Fico has a deputy prime minister 
who will be responsible for EU funds and particularly for the funds coming from the EU's facility for post-COVID reconstruction. But very significant part of his portfolio will be dedicated to the EU's projects of strategic importance and post-war reconstruction of Ukraine, which clearly shows that there is a big interest of Slovakia to remain on board with all other like-minded countries who would like to, you know, uh, take part in the post-war reconstruction of Ukraine. But the post-war reconstruction can't start without having Ukrainian sovereignty safeguarded or granted. So in this regard, I am not optimistic when it comes to the future steps of the Slovak government, when it comes to its rhetoric. But practically, there are signs that certain continuity will be maintained again. And the program of the government that was published early this week also showed that the support of Ukraine is maintained there as a priority. However, together with this uh, not really well-defined aim to achieve the peace in Ukraine. So what you're saying that we, well, shouldn't trust what the politicians are saying, stay calm and carry on watching what they actually do, and that it may not be as worrying as the things that they say. Am I right? I agree with the second part of the sentence you just have said. The first part, of course, we have to follow the rhetoric and we have to criticize the rhetoric if it is really offensive and if it goes against the principles of liberal democracy or the values uh, over which the EU, for instance, is built and that go against the international law, for instance. That is very important because rhetoric, uh, if it is maintained for a longer time, definitely can be transformed into practical steps. So we have to be careful, but yes, we have to distinguish between the rhetoric and the practical steps. So both. And we have to cherish our democracies because they are more fragile than we may think. Thank you very much, Tomasz Strażaj, Slovak Foreign Policy Association. Thank you very much for the invitation. Podcast produced by Free Range Productions.